Hey, Wonderfuls, welcome to episode 390 of the JV Club with my guest, Amelia McDonald-Perry. I uh, would say to anybody who has listened to the podcast at length um, for for any number of episodes, you very likely have heard me talk about how much I love the Undisclosed podcast. Of course, I've had uh, Colin Miller on the JV Club, Susan Simpson on the JV Club, Rabia, I'm coming for you. And uh, I'm so, so happy to also have had the opportunity to meet and speak with Amelia McDonald Perry, who has done a couple of shorter, um, well, I don't know, the Freddie Gray season was very long indeed. There was so much to cover, and she did such a great job. Um, she's done a couple of, of undisclosed seasons, and I highly recommend them. She's just doing really great work, and it was so good to get to know her. Uh, she's also a great artist, and I bought a weaving of hers on Etsy. So listen, I am a full service friend. Um, Okay, so please enjoy this episode. Uh, of course, we talk a, a lot about um, some of the couple of cases in Baltimore that Amelia is uh, has been stringently, stridently working on, um, as well as her personal background. We recorded this episode couple, a few months ago, and uh, I saved it to get back into the ladies uh, following our summer. So I hope you enjoy it. And I also wanted to just quickly thank Malika for your wonderful email, my dear. Hope everyone is doing all right, taking care of themselves and each other. And I will talk to you next time on the podcast. so much for getting on the horn with me. <laughs> Thank uh, you for having me. I just, as I was, as I was forming that word in my mouth, I thought, why is it called the horn? I know, uh, right? I mean, like, I understand if you, if you, if you, if you blow on a horn pre- phone days that would suggest that it's like during a time at which you're the town crier or there's some sort <laughs> right. of reason that you guess like <laughs> the gathering everyone, of people yeah. yeah but then when it becomes a one-on-one but or maybe because it looked at the did original phone sort of look like like the same way like a gramophone did where it sort of had that's the what shape i'm thinking now I, that's why i picture it like actually yeah didn't because didn't they hold up something to their ear and then they also had to hold something in front of their mouth and maybe yes. the thing that they held yeah yes Maybe that's yeah, where it comes it from. Oh, God. We are seriously some solving some major mysteries of history. <laughs> you know, that's what we do in our spare time. Watch out. Yeah. Watch out, everybody who has a podcast about how things work. Um, uh, well, I really appreciate it. I, uh, I don't know how uh, you all are faring in. You're in the Baltimore area, yeah? Or I am, like, yeah. Yeah, you're in, you've, you've been in the thick of a very uh, exciting, troubling, and interesting place for, um, it's been that way for kind of as long as it's existed, right? <laughs> Forever, yes. <laughs> Sadly, yeah. but yes. Yeah. And is that where you were born and raised, or is that no. a more recent move? Um, it's actually pretty recent. I grew up in California. I grew up in uh, San Diego and I went to college in Santa Cruz in Northern California. And then, um, yeah. And then I, uh, moved to New York city after college. So I moved to New York in June, July of 2001, right before 9-11. That was a interesting welcoming. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, and I worked in journalism, magazine journalism, internet journalism for um, 18 years in New York. And then um, in not this most recent April, but the April before, um, I moved from New York or Brooklyn to Baltimore. So I've been here, I guess it's like a little over a year now, year and some months, yeah. So when you were working on Freddie Gray stuff, you were doing it from New York, I guess, because that's been a little while. Yeah. Yes. I was taking extremely expensive, annoyingly expensive Amtrak trains down to Baltimore very fairly frequently where the the cheapest one way is like $86 and you're like thanking the heavens when you manage to find that cheap of a ticket. But normally it's really expensive. Yeah. So that was actually part of the reason why like contributed to me moving down here is I kept doing work down here and I was like why am I paying my exorbitant like insane Brooklyn rent that I can't (laughs) afford and spending all this money to go down to Baltimore when I should just move there yeah so here I am (laughs) well that's a good question though because you know I think because I know you as having done this you know very impassioned and I think I have so much to say about all of your undisclosed stuff that I, by the way, have planned on zero. I just sort of was like, I'm going to coast right through this. Are you kidding me? My memory will totally hold up. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, so we'll see if that proves in any way true. Um, but you know, because you, uh, because you have chosen to take on, um, covering stuff that can be kind of the most heartbreaking or the most infuriating or both um, in in some of the things that are happening in Baltimore, you know, it could be seen or, or it wouldn't be surprising, I guess, if you also were like, oh, yeah, I, I can't, I, you know, there's nothing appealing about living there. It makes me too angry versus like, no, it's a wonderful right. place with wonderful people. And I'm feeling now like I may be having some sort of, you know, larger, small impact on making those communities better. Is there some combination of all of that in terms it's of your yeah. definitely all of the, the above? Like, I think that with Baltimore, the second I um, kind of started paying attention to it, I couldn't take my attention off of it. Um, and it felt, even when I was in New York it and was just so focused on Baltimore, um, it felt like I was here in a weird way, but I wasn't. Um, and so there wasn't, I didn't actually get any of the sort of relief of not living here really. Like mm. I was so invested in the work I was doing and I developed friendships down here. And um, and so when I moved down here actually, like it was it was a unbelievably easy like state move. Like I moved, mm-hmm. you know, I picked up my life of 18 years and I moved down here and it was actually, I mean, I was partially also like in the throes of doing the Keith Davis Jr. podcast at the time. So I didn't have like a second to breathe, let alone like stress about, uh, you know, I couldn't really stress about the move. I just had to do it. Um, But living here, I mean, it's definitely amplifies everything. Um, But I mean, I like it because I feel like this is my part of the world that I can, you know, with everything else that's going on (laughs) everywhere. Yep. like whether it's in the country, whether it's across the world, um, it is obviously a very daunting feeling. Um, and Baltimore to me is always like, as soon as I started paying attention to it, it's like a a really um, a condensed sort of like microcosm of the most insane stuff that happens out in the world. Like, it, you know, it's a crazy city. And it's a place though where um, they're the worst people in the world are here. Mm-hmm. And also I think some of the best people in the world are yeah. here. Um, and so it it 
it riles your um, passions on kind of both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's funny because like I'll like tell my mom sort of stories about Baltimore, you know, whether it's about like the violence or whether it's about, you know, the corrupt people that are in positions of power. Um, and she'll be like, but you like it. And I was like, yeah, I love it. I love it here. And I do. I mean, it's it's a heartbreaking city, but it has such resilience and um, history. And, you know, you feel it's a place you want to fight for. And mm. the people here are people you want to fight for. And it does give you, I mean, you know, it does give me a sense of some sort of sense of purpose, I guess. And I mm-hmm. do feel like in certain ways, although... In certain ways, I feel like I am able to affect some sort of change, even if it's just like irritating a public official for five minutes. It's like, <laughs> it's like I'm making an impact. Whereas sure. I don't think we feel that way very often in sort of like a sort of on a national level or certainly not on a global level. Um, and at a time like this where like it could be very easy to just like not get out of bed and be super depressed, um, sure. it, it, it gives you a reason to kind of keep going you know it gives it gets you up every day so that's how it's been for me when you say you started paying attention to it and I know that uh I think you kind of delve into the the history of it a little bit in back in the Freddie Gray the early Freddie Gray reporting days um could you just uh take me back to when you did sort of as you put it kind of start paying attention to it in a different way where where were you in your in your life in your career in Brooklyn um that you know that that kind of the spotlight fell on it for you and that you started like pivoting honestly it was I don't think I really thought much of Baltimore before 2014 just because I'd never been here um you know, I'm from the West Coast, so I was, I had never had like Baltimore as a place we visited. Um, so it was kind of like a foreign city to me in a way mm-hmm. until 2014. And I, not to sound like a total basic bitch, but, no, but I listened to cereal. I listened to cereal. Yeah. And I got, I, not so much the podcast. I mean, the podcast definitely hooked me. I'm not going to try and act like I'm like so cool now, but, um, but the case. I, I mean, but the case, yes. And yeah. I've been interested in criminal justice issues before, but like this was like, uh, you know, it was, it was a compelling story. And um, I got very invested in, I mean, I felt pretty quickly felt like Adnan Syed hadn't done it. Um, mm. But I was so, I was mostly sort of horrified by sort of the details of how he was implicated convicted how you know I I just it was such a good detailed look at how um the criminal justice system actually works um which is terribly um, I mean it works the way it's designed but it it hurts a lot of innocent people and um so that's what really drew my attention to Baltimore and I was just like initially was just like I was a fan of the show and then at the time I was running a a women's blog so I started writing about it um and I got really like I'd always been a a person who gets really deep into the details and so that was something that was really compelling to me about about serial but even more so undisclosed actually like oh yeah I was just like oh my god like just the obsessing over you know the minutia but the important minutia like and what you could be found I was just completely transfixed by that um and you know I was wowed by you know like Susan Simpson and and Robbie and and Colin Miller I was just like this is amazing and I started watching all sorts of crime docs and like 
got really, yeah, I got, I developed a little bit of an obsession. And then, um, I, Adnan had his, uh, post-conviction relief hearing in 2015. Um, and I had left my job at that point and was freelancing. And so, um, I, and I ended up coming down here to cover the hearing, um, for the blog I used to run um and was doing like these I was sitting in court every day and then running back to my hotel and like exhaustively recapping every second of the hearing um and I just I loved it I just loved it and was so infuriated too at the same time you know like I was just I hadn't been that sort of stirred up Mm -hmm. in a very very long time and then you know through that like paying attention to Baltimore and and seeing how this case came together 20 years ago and and you know what the police had done during their investigation and then really sort of realizing oh this wasn't a like one-off like this is a pattern and also the like not just in homicide investigations, but just like across the department as a whole. Um, And I just started paying more and more attention. And it was actually through um, Undisclosed and through Rabia that like sort of how the the Freddie podcast came together sort of landed in my lap in a weird way. And we ended Mm. up having Undisclosed produce it. Um, But that's kind of how it happened. Like I I met some people and they wanted me and this, um, uh, my co-podcaster, Justine Barron, we didn't know each other. Uh, We lived in totally different states. We were both just sort of asked if we wanted to help out with this podcast idea. And she and I ended up doing, sorry, all the work. And so we took it for ourselves and we pitched it to Undisclosed and they decided to produce it. Um, And yeah, all of a sudden I was making a podcast about this case and from there yeah I love this this is like what's so fun is listening to a fellow wonk like yeah (laughs) but when when I hear you talking about your enthusiasm for it and and just sort of diving in I get that same feeling that delicious feeling of getting like yeah yeah yes exactly exactly though too at the same time of being like what the hell am I taking on here like for real okay but yeah I I (sighs) the thing that you know I think that's you know as a person who sort of moved on um in in exactly the same way uh in terms of like where the passion fell was like I I think the the place where 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 the where the serial kind of drop off the cliff is where undisclosed begins is all of the people who like genuinely really enjoyed serial but they really were there for the mystery and they were there for you know Sarah's journey and like right. maybe try, tried tried yeah tried yeah tried listening tr- tried listening to the, the the bits and pieces of the legal system and like the various point by points um of the minutia and were like yeah i guess that's not what i you know that's not maybe what i showed up for and not to say that undisclosed doesn't have a massive following but that like i'm at the point now where i kind of have forgotten a lot of what serial covered because i've listened to that first season of undisclosed like three times just you know because it's so well done and and it's and to feel so much like you know i think we we live in this environment now where they're like some of our favorite things and this stretches across from you know beyond you know just criminal justice reform or or just you know if you're really into how animation gets made or how food gets made there are like there are these creators who are 
putting themselves at this, this essentially the same level as the people listening. Like there's a sense of like, hey, we're peers. Like we came into this. Yes, we may have experience in the legal world, but we we aren't above thinking that you might be really interested in these tiny bits and pieces and let us take you with us. And 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 that's what I think I've loved so much about, you know, about the work that you've done and, and you know, getting to know Bob Ruff a little bit and, and seeing, you know, his sort of like weird journey <laughs> to the impact that he's had now, you know, where he is like truly getting people out of prison and stuff. And um, and I think that that so much of that comes like from the seed of Rabia having oh, that totally. that generosity of spirit and the sense of like, look, I don't know what I'm doing. I got really lucky with Sarah. I feel like the story has not gone the place it needed to go for me. Who wants on? Who wants in? Are you good? Are you interested? Are you passionate? Are you committed? Right. Like, I'm no better than you. Come with me and or, or go do your own thing. It's also the fact that I think it's that this feeling of and this belief that like, you and I and Rabia and Susan and whoever, we're, we're not any less capable <laughs> and in fact are possibly more capable of taking on something like this than the police are. And it's a kind of very contrary narrative, this idea that like, let the police do their jobs, like they know right. what they're doing. Right. And um, that's all a look, that's not to say that there aren't some very intelligent, uh, great detectives out there, although I think I mean, I just don't know where they are. Um, <laughs> I have not met one personally, but I hear. Um, but in general, like, I mean, you know, you start looking at any of these cases, whether it's Adnan's case, whoever's, and you realize, oh, there's no special training you have. Like, <laughs> I mean, there's none of that. I mean, that I'm sure sucks. that there are things you, it's true though. I know, like, I know. I'm definitely not questioning I you. I know that but. in Baltimore, like it, it's to become a detective, it's not a promotion. It's just a title change. You don't get even get a pay bump. Mm. There's no additional training. God. Like, not that I think the training would be great, but like, <laughs> I think you just most, it's, you're learning on the job right. or you're not learning on the job. Right. So, and this idea that like armchair, you know, investigators don't know what they're doing. Um, think again, like. Yeah. It's like cool. anything, I, think, I mean, like yeah. anything, there's, there's the, you know, there's sort of like, it's, it's totally appropriate to like cast aspersions on irresponsible armchair detectives, but totally. it's also more dangerous to be an irresponsible police officer. <laughs> so it's kind uh, of like, exactly. for sure you were out of your league and should not have thrown names out for the Boston Marathon bond. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Those egregious mistakes that were done that the first thing that people said of, and of course you would, were you know how dare you you're not an investigator you're not licensed you're not this you're not that a hundred percent accurate yes that's merited but also like but then also some of those people not those exact people but some of those people who came from the same place of how can I help it doesn't seem like enough is happening is there anything I can do and who operate well end up being the ones who then turn the spotlight on the police and say and by the way how dare you right <laughs> like, exactly how dare you you do have a license you do have training and you just did a similar but worse thing than this person than Joe Schmo or whatever you know right right I mean I think you always have to be cautious about what you publicly disclose yeah. but you know if they're if you're looking if there's a case that you're interested in and there appears to be holes and the person is maintaining their innocence and you know what's the harm in in looking a little further 
Okay, we're going to take a break. I will be back after a word from our wonderful buddies at Maximum Fun. Hey, you like movies? What about coming up with movie ideas over the course of an hour? Because that's what we do every week on Story Break, a writer's room podcast where three Hollywood professionals have an hour to come up with a pitch for a movie or TV show based off of totally zany prompts. Like that time we reimagined Star Wars based on our phone's autocomplete. Luke Skywalker is a family man and it's Star Wars, but it's a good idea. <laughs> okay, how about that time we broke the story of a bunch of Disney Channel original movies based solely on the title and the poster? Okay, Sarah Hyler is a 50-foot woman. Let's just go with it, guys. Okay, or the time we finally cracked the Adobe Photoshop feature film. Stamp tool is your Woody, and then the autofill oh, is the new Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> Join us as we have a good time imagining all the movies Hollywood is too cowardly to make. Story Break comes out every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I don't know why I'm using this voice now. Let me ask you this, too, because um, I- I'm I'm steadily trying to sort of creep my way backwards towards uh, the the all the little <laughs> germinations of who Amelia is now. But um, so for you, when you because you study journalism, when you uh, uh, pardon me while I like think about this verbally and like unwind it and untwist it a little bit as I go. Mm-hmm. But when you were so running a woman's blog, did that already have a sense of and this is where I'm going with this. So I'm going to actually jump forward. So mm-hmm. when I was, so when I listened to the special coverage for Freddie Gray, one of the first things that struck me, and I'm sure you've heard this before, and this is by no means a criticism, but one of the first things that strikes a listener, I think, after kind of listening <laughs> to the semi-measured way right. in which, especially Colin, right? You know, but they sort of like, like the undisclosed team sort of, you know, even though clearly this is like a life and death situation uh, in particular for Rabia, um, there isn't necessarily as much emotion involved. And one of the first things that strikes a listener or struck me in listening to your coverage was like, yeah. immediately <laughs> I was like, oh, she's pissed. And I did have that moment. I mean, I'm a podcaster and I'm a podcaster with with like zero filter um so no part of me judges that but the but there was a but the part of me that knew you as a journalist was like oh my god I wonder if this was a decision like if there was some if it felt like that was something you weighed out like how measured do I need to sound or do I need to try to sound unbiased or has that ship sailed and like I'm fucking pissed and I'm not gonna you know couch this reporting in some way that feels like it's more traditional college class journalism you know um direct approach like tell me about that yeah I mean I look I studied journalism um and have done I guess what you would consider traditional journalism like always seeking comment from the other side always presenting both sides blah 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 blah. um and no disrespect to that I think there's a time and a place for it and certain stories call for it um I also ran a women's blog that was largely I mean we talked we we wrote about anything that was of interest to women so like everything basically but you know we would also I guess when I say women's blog we'd also cover dating and sex and all that kind of stuff um but it was very sort of personable first person uh uh had a very you know this is a a uh, there's a particular era of the internet. I don't know whether it's happening so much anymore, but like where you're sort of a character in a way that your mm. readers get to know. Um, so I had, and I had been there for, you know, eight, nine years. Um, so I was very used to being able to just put how I felt about things out there. So I, mm. I can't deny that that definitely has had uh, to a certain degree, probably an influence on my writing style. Um, 
but I, I think with my feelings on journalism have definitely evolved in the sense that I don't, I don't believe that journalists, any journalists are like fully objective. Um, I think that journalists are human beings and are as objective or not objective as any person is. Um, And that we all walk into whatever we're covering with our own life experience, our own biases, acknowledged and unacknowledged. Um, And that what is considered to be fair and balanced coverage is always it's it that's been constructed through a particular lens right like it's not necessarily fair and balanced to the communities who are being represented in that coverage like you know this idea that uh and i think that's especially the case with with covering crime um and police um Mm -hmm. and i think I mean I think it depends on it's it's a difficult thing to do um and that's something I definitely discovered as I as I left my job and I started doing more traditional journalism again um and in particular focused on things like crime um was that it's actually very hard to do um a a balanced take um that isn't almost solely informed by the police narrative, especially at first. So what I found is that, like, I found that really frustrating, you know, like the entire sort of, if you're covering a crime that just occurred, for example, like all of the information you're getting is largely going to be from police or it's going, if you're lucky, you can maybe get some, some witnesses, um, on the ground, like, you know, neighbors, whatever, but you know, the defendant, um, and their attorney is, never going to speak to you like they're focused on the what's best for them legally it's understandable but that just means that the initial sort of coverage of any sort of crime and oftentimes that's where it stops is the coverage of the crime and the arrest and that's it um is going to be through the lens of the the official narrative from police and um as a result it just sort of taints the entire knowledge of what actually occurred um and then by the time you get to the trial if it's even covered you start to realize oh the stuff that we found out initially isn't quite true it's like actually kind of different and so as i was kind of doing this coverage um and you know there started to become this little bit of this backlash against like serial and true crime journalism and like oh are we are we turning terrible things into entertainment for people and blah, 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 blah. And like, there's definitely like an important conversation to have about that. But like this, there was also this sort of tenor of like victims rights and, you know, oh, you know, by, you know, looking into these old cases and wrongful convictions, possible wrongful convictions, you're like, you know, re-traumatizing the families of the victims, you know, you're, you know, armchair detectives talking about things they don't know about. And I really found that to be absurd. Um, And it definitely sort of started to really inform the kind of work I wanted to do, where I felt like, you know, the, the official narratives for crimes have long directed the, 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 long, the, the, just how the story's told forever, you know? Um, and whether it's true or not. And that seems to me to have such a horrible effect, not just on like maybe the person who's innocent, um, or the families who actually really didn't actually get justice for their loved one because the, the person who actually committed the crime was never actually held responsible. Um, you know, 
that the that that sort of uh, journalism that that takes a very outward um, and very clear perspective of I guess they call it now like advocacy journalism, where you you come into it from the position for, with a p- sort of held position um, or a belief, and you're clear about it, but right. that doesn't prevent you from doing really thorough work, and that's very much the direction I sort of found myself going in um, and and found to be actually like incredibly valid and incredibly necessary because mm. when you start paying attention to sort of like wrongful convictions or or just the once you start looking at this stuff you realize that that nobody has been do has has been looking out for the defendant in that way um, or looking out for the truth in that way and that you know, the state right. or the police or the prosecutors or whoever have had, they've had all this time, they've had the power to control the narrative for so long and that there's no real harm in examining that closer. Um, and in fact, that some really amazing things can come out of it, very important things. And mm-hmm. like, look, I don't love the fact that, you know, um, for example, just, you know, I'm sure that it is, newly traumatizing for Heyman Lee's family, for example, uh, to have Serial come out, to have this international interest in her murder. I I utterly and completely empathize with them. At the same time, um, I don't believe that, you know, Adnan's conviction, for example, it brings her any justice because I don't personally believe that he did it. Um, and I certainly think it's an injustice to him. And Agreed. You know, sometimes the cards were dealt in life. Like, it's just not fair. It's not fair that she died. It's not fair that she was murdered. And it's not fair that they don't have her anymore. And it's horrible. But it is what it is. And right. Adon is still alive. And the person who com- who really committed the murder could yeah. still be alive. And don't we want to get to the truth? I do really value the truth. And I really value mm-hmm. questioning these systems that put people in cages for years or their whole life, um, I think it is a it is a a massive thing to take away somebody's liberty um, that we don't take seriously enough, and that and in this country especially, I think we are overly dependent on the police solving all of our problems, problems that are actually systemic issues, um, and that we literally lock them away. Um, yeah. And so all of this just sort of all came together for me, and as a person who has I just I have always just sort of worn my biases on my sleeve I guess like I'm clear about where I stand on things but then I'm I'm still gonna back up where I stand with with really thorough research and like I'll present it to you and if you think I'm wrong (laughs) if there's something I've misunderstood or if you just flat out disagree or if you think that you know, whatever, then fine, but I'm putting it out there but you know I'm not of the type to like hide anything um but yeah, I'm also not going to pretend like there are necessarily two sides to every story or that that one side hasn't already told their story. Like a, a perfect example for me is like Keith Davis Jr., who's been tried, you know, for this one murder four times. Um, yeah. You know, the state's ch- case has not changed. It's gotten weaker, frankly. Oh. But but like the idea that like I, you know, I did this podcast and I I had no right. interest whatsoever in, I knew that the state's attorney's office wouldn't speak to me, but like I didn't have an interest in speaking to them because I felt like, you know what, you you presented your case four times now. 
I'm going to actually use the way you presented your case, your witnesses, on the podcast. And that's as far as it's going to go. Like, I'm going to do what has not been done yet, which is to tell Keith's side of the story and to take a really close look at where the... Right. what actually is behind the state's case because that had never been done and that to me is like that's what that's the the value i think that journalism like i do could bring to the table oh absolutely and i you know it's i i admit like i i bristle at the term advocacy journalism because it feels like that qualifier is almost like a flag. It's like a warning. Right. You know what I mean? It feels like rather than like like what in, in that case, then you could just be like you know, unlike you know, government narrative journalism. Right. Like like right, no, exactly. you know, a person who a person who is who is reporting what the information they get from the police was would never say like, oh yeah, that's fine. Let's call that journal like journalism sanctioned by you know the local right. government. Like, like the idea, that's yeah. never gonna fly. But yet you know the advocacy journalism that sounds very and like I know everyone's you know we're all sort of like everyone from every perspective it feels like they're like a you know a snap away from snapping right. <laughs> kind of. Um, but you know that is one of those terms where you know, because of what's going on in the world, particularly in the federal government of the United States and the way, you know, the the, the relationship that the media has to the, the, the White House and all that kind of stuff is like made me so hypersensitive to anything that, you know, feels to me like it's some kind of way of undermining right. um, good work being done, you know, as just being like, oh, yeah, 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 they have their agenda and it's totally biased and we're the people with the truth and they're the ones who are, you know, if you hear advocacy, just rest assured, you know, just think of like right. someone hugging a tree. Right. Well, you the know what I mean? And that, like, like that regular, like traditional journalism journalism isn't biased of course it right, is exactly it's hugely biased um and you know yeah like you were saying like crime journalism in particular relies heavily on what police say they don't go about you know they'll maybe say police say blah 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 but there's no effort to fact check that stuff there's just a sort of belief that if the police are telling you that then they must that must be what they really believe that must be what the, the evidence that they have indicates um and the idea that the, like journalists who report that kind of thing are somehow are doing journalism better than advocacy journalists um, who are just more, frankly, we're just more, I would say, like, just more open about being human and having biases and having opinions and being influenced right. by the world around us and, you know, and, and unapologetic about it. And I think that journalism as a whole would actually benefit hugely if more journalists did that and really reckoned with it instead of just like back patting themselves for thinking that they're like so unbiased when they're not at right all. right well I think what what felt to me it felt to me such a natural next step uh next case for you to cover with Keith Davis Jr. because there was a sort of sense of you know the what was exposed in the Freddie Gray reporting and 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 by the way, I constantly tell people they need to listen to that season Thank and you. that they must listen to the addenda, addenda as well, um, because D. there's some really 
uncomfortable mm-hmm. stuff that's talked about in that and it's great like it's great stuff it's it, it's messy and it's scary and it's infuriating and it's hopeful and it feels it just feels very raw in yes. a way that um just felt so important like I kind of there's so much great work out there um but in terms of just like like not like unwritten sort of unscripted conversations that are happening uh between people um from different walks of life within the 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 construct of like looking at criminal justice reform and in baltimore in in particular is like it's it's really stunning and i think your reporting really set sets up those addenda for those conversations to happen and to, to need to happen um but i don't think they could happen if the reporting itself weren't already like, fuck this, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it would yeah. be a big jump to very sort of like calmly, um, you know, talk about some of the stuff and be like, anyway, and then the police say this, oh, I don't know. Right. And then to go to the addenda, you would sort of go like, whoa, whoa, what a what a tone shift. And so I think it works as a whole um, really, really well. And And as far as like, you know, sort of your experience of covering that case and and just how kind of gobsmacking it all was um to then have you know and I think you you say it I'm sure you say it in in the very beginning of of your covering of of Keith and and you know of of his wife too is this idea of like this is this is their police's worst nightmare it's somebody Mm -hmm. that they kill and they can't control the the narrative they can control the narrative if they kill and they can if you, you don't kill suddenly there's a different level of advocacy and a different level of reality and truth that right. still exists that you can't just snuff out and that 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 would be terrifying and very frustrating for um for a, an environment that has been created around like well if we just spin it this way then people will just accept it right and you in know? a way they and, kind of have you know like you know keith is uh, I mean, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time, literally, in terms of get it, you know, happening to be on a corner when the police start chasing an armed robber and then they mistake it for him and getting shot. But like also, you know, for that to happen at the time that it did, um, mm. you know, it, five weeks after Freddie Gray has right. has died and after, you know, the the Baltimore uprising, which kind of had a number a couple days of of legitimate sort of rioting and 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 looting um but overall you know uh, i think that the police department and city officials like viewed the whole from the moment the first protest started it was a riot um right and you know for keith to be the first person shot by baltimore police after the death of freddie gray after mm. the baltimore uprising when you know the the you know the the Rite Aid on on West North and and Pennsylvania is like still smoking. Um, mm. You know, it had burned down. It was all over the news, and like the police were t- like just the last thing they wanted to happen was yeah. another uprising, and they were definitely fearful that that was going to be the case when they shot Keith. And you know, I think like th- I don't know what would have happened if. Keith had been shot before Freddie, uh, his neck was broken in that van. I, but I do know what did happen to him being, you know, so severely injured, but surviving so closely after Freddie passed away. Um, 
is that he, I mean, he really, he, he bore the brunt of so much. Um, yeah. You know, and to a certain degree, like some of it is, you know, the fact that what happened to him, while there are certain things that are similar about it to what happened to Freddie, there are massive differences. Um, you know, possibly the biggest one is the fact that, you know, Freddie's arrest was caught on film, like a, a friend filmed with their cell phone, um, right. you know, and it went viral. And there was no video footage of Keith, you know, nothing, um, you know. Right. And so that really helped the police for sure and it, it not just like control the narrative but just like stop it any narrative from getting out beyond like you know the local news for a couple of days um right. and it's something that has managed to continue now for for you know over five years and um you know not it certainly has become more of a thing here i mean there's definitely like an actual movement here in, in baltimore behind um, def, you know, uh, advocating for him and 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 maintaining that he's innocent, and you know the fact that he's been maliciously prosecuted, and the fact that he's a police brutality victim. But it was something that that you know uh, that wasn't the result of a viral video. That was the result of his wife, well, his girlfriend at the time, but it's now wife fighting every single day to keep his name out there, and something she does. Mm every day now i mean i talk to her every day and this is her life um is making sure that people do not forget him and what she's been able to accomplish and how many people she's been able to rally behind him is is no small feat but i i also at the same time i it infuriates me every single day that um his case isn't more known that it's actively ignored um yeah. I think for a variety of reasons. Um, I think because it's uncomfortable for people to have to um, reckon with the fact that somebody that they saw as being very heroic um, for charging the officers in the Gray case, I'm talking about Marilyn Mosby, our state's attorney, that she could then, you know, in a matter of weeks, yeah. utterly turn her back on another victim. Um, and then double and triple and quadruple and quintuple down on it um you know and and why that's happening and yeah. and all of it and the fact that it it we've been unable to beyond you know undisclosed is obviously international but it's been very difficult to get any sort of coverage outside of baltimore and that i truly blame on the fact mm. that our media is actually quite biased and they are biased in favor of whatever the 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 narrative of the moment is whatever the popular position is um and i personally think that it is right. very uh people prefer to think of marilyn mosby as being heroic i think it's much more convenient i get it i used to feel that way myself um it's much harder to sort of right. deal with the complicated truths of all of this that none of it was ever particularly heroic at all yeah and you know to face the fact that because i think it's, it requires people to really sort of look at themselves and the things that they're tolerating while at the same time sort of judging other people um you know like that's one of the things i found so fascinating about media coverage lately is you know we have all these major news networks really finally thoroughly covering police brutality issues um and the way that police are able to get away with things. And yet, at the same time, 
there are cases that they they look away from too because it would it, it's too messy they like things neat right. and that is a bias you know but you know but uh, yes a hundred percent agree with everything you're saying I, I i don't know how you can <laughs> i don't know how i understand that the the marilyn mosby part mm-hmm. of it is is messy and disappointing and you know scary um, in terms of like wanting to believe that you have advocates and then feeling like, you know, wait a minute, that's what, so you're telling me it's a total 180 from right. what I expected or thought or had hoped or, you know, was excited about. But at the same time, like, if you, like, you can't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how you can look at the facts about Keith Davis Jr.'s case. And by the way, for those of you who are fans of, you know, Max Fun Podcast, are fans of my podcast, maybe like what we <laughs> consider to be slightly lighter fare uh, on a regular basis, and you and you and you get most of your uh, criminal justice reform talk through listening to me be impassioned about it, you must listen to this coverage. You must listen to Emilio's reporting. Um, it, it, there's too much to go into right now. So if you're annoyed at us that we're like talking about this as if you <laughs> should, should know what it is, stop this right now just go listen to the whole season come back and then you know start from the beginning and listen to this entire uh, interview again um but i don't know how you can look at those i mean it, it, it in it, in many ways yes i understand it being complicated but in right. like the most important right. way it seems so simple like it seems absurdly nauseatingly truly right. physically nauseatingly simple like i cannot think about it and i I take my hat off to you and to Kelly and to Team Keith and everybody. I I can't think about like when I saw you were doing an update. I was like, <laughs> I I need you to get ready yeah. to feel like I'm going to throw yeah. up for the next it's, for like at least the rest of the day. You know, I felt strongly about the case when I first started looking into it. For sure, I, I was immediately struck by like, wait a second, they've tried him how many times? And he was shot in the face. And you know, I knew that there were problems, obviously, with the case, but. The more I looked at it, it's impossible not to be emotional about it. I mean, I I would be betraying, I would be being dishonest if I would try to pretend like I wasn't um, emotional about it because it it is, we should be emotional about it. Um, you know, this is a person who was shot by the police and, you know, they say he had a gun. I don't believe that. I believe that they they planted it on him. But regardless, it had no bullets in it. Um, and they shot, you know, over 30 bullets into an empty garage. They hit him three times. And then he's been prosecuted for, you know, initially one crime, acquitted of that, and then charged with a whole other crime, a murder, that he's been prosecuted for four times. And like, you know, put aside any, you don't need to know any facts to know that, wait a second, They've tried him four times for the same crime. First, whenever I tell people that, they're like, what about double jeopardy? And I'm like, well, double jeopardy means like the case has to be adjudicated. Like you can't try somebody again if they have been acquitted of something. Um, But if you get a number of hung juries, you get a conviction, but it's quickly overturned, um, they can continue to prosecute. And, but normally, you know, when when your case isn't isn't working in some sort, if you're unable to convince 12 to convict, um, if you are able to get a conviction, but only by doing really shady stuff that even a judge is like, ooh, we got to overturn this, then that's when you you really yeah. you have to go back to the drawing board and be like, do we really ha- did we get this right? 
Do we need to do more investigation? Did somebody else right. do this? And because obviously, if they're willing to spend the money on the trial itself, you like would, yeah. you could also spend money on the investigation process. You know, if you're right. talking about, well, we can't afford to back it. You know what I mean? It's like, mm, I think you've tipped your hand a little bit too much on what well, you're willing to spend money on. They do it all the time. On. You know, most people. Yeah. I mean, look, we have hung juries all the time. You, it's not always the case that the person is then tried again. Um, it happens, certainly. It depends on what the case is. It depends on what the evidence is. But, you know, uh, to have this happen now, it happened four times. And, you know, Keith is poised to get a new trial, knock on wood. And so, and I believe firmly that when that happens, the state's attorney's office will try him again for this murder for the fifth time. And I don't, you know, I've, I've studied every single trial closely. And while there has been uh, a couple of new things, depending on the trial, none of it has been like either uh, implicating in a way that is valid and uh, can be trusted or um, implicating at all. Um, And, you know, in combination with that, there's been tons of things that have been withheld. There've been all sorts of dirty tricks played by the prosecution. Um, And, you know, what it all adds up to is like anybody takes a look at closer, closer look at it. I have no doubt who you are if you take a closer look at it at the very least you're thinking, wait a second here. Like, clearly the case is not good enough. So what do you do then? You don't just go prosecute it again. You either make it stronger, significantly stronger, because you go out and you find more evidence that the person did it, that Keith did it, or you face the music and recognize, you know what? We screwed up. We got it wrong. Free this guy. Let's find out who really did it. And what I think you see historically, not just in Baltimore, but everywhere, is that that is the, that is the outcome that uh, police and prosecutors will do everything to avoid. Um, I, it's shameful because that is their jobs, or is to right. find out the truth and to get justice. And that is not really what happens. I mean, at least on cases where they're, they're presented with clear evidence that they need to do better or more or different um there's a real digging in of heels um to maintain and to insist that they were right all along um and i i you know sometimes i think the motivations are financial like not wanting to have to deal with the ultimate civil lawsuit that is to come if you free somebody who's Mm. innocent um you know and i think sometimes it's just about not wanting to admit that they were wrong, like genuinely, personally, not wanting to admit it. Um, Yeah, I don't get it. It's so frustrating. Well, that's what I was going to ask. And you don't have to have an answer to this at all. But just to put it into the abstract, like, (laughs) what do you think a person who is a prosecutor, is a DA, is a prosecutor, uh, assistant DA, whatever, somebody has been given the information they've been given from the police, but... But there's really very little chance that they don't know what stinks Mm -hmm. because of, you know, whatever their process. Like sometimes 
not to say that you know the, I, I mean I have no idea it's been proven obviously that sometimes police give bad information to prosecutors P- prosecutors go off of the information they have which seems cut and dry and they put the wrong person in prison and they really didn't have anything to do with it then there are all the cases where the prosecution does there is a braiding violation there is clear evidence of a, of prosecutorial misconduct whether it's going to be officially you know labeled that way or if it's just like uh, everyone knows it's like an open secret that it happened um that you know if if a person is prosecuting a case and there's just too much of an indication that it's very there's a lot of shaky stuff going on shaky too shady stuff yeah how do you think that person is looking at it truly in their minds and I again you don't have to have the answer to this but to your point like is that person going like you know what I acknowledge that this is a bad case but I am doing all of this other great work over here mm-hmm. and 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 I can't let this distract me unfortunately there's gonna be some collateral damage or is that person like looking at every case this way like no I need to win this it doesn't matter I mean I you think, know what I mean yeah like, I, I think in general the outlook is I think the goal is always to win um I think you know obviously I think that that is the job um, and that's what is the sort of fuel being, that's what's coming from the top down, you know? Like, that's your job. You need to be winning in court. You need to be getting convictions. Um, oh, in terms of of bad cases, I think what happens is, um, I think that even if it, at most, maybe a prosecutor is willing to admit that the case that they have is not very solid, but I think they convince themselves that the person did it. And so to them, and I think this is what police do too, they, the ends justify the means. Um, right. And so, so, and I think that they look at their jobs as they tell themselves that they're putting bad people away. Um, and so, yeah, maybe a case like the evidence is like not so great. Maybe it's all circumstantial and like, yeah, maybe your detective is kind of a liar, but this guy totally did it. Like, I think there is this, I don't, you know, it's hard for me. I'm, I'm totally speaking as an outsider here. I know like one prosecutor um, and I even think he's kind of garbage. Sorry, buddy. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, I do think there is this mentality I think it's something that's being reinforced with all the people you work with. It's being reinforced by the police officers you you engage with um, that they're all guilty, you know, like maybe the evidence is way better in some cases than others, but they're they're guilty. And um, I don't think there's a lot of it's not an environment in which you spend any time questioning that. and but I in the case of Keith, but in the case of Keith, like <laughs> the, 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 that, I mean, this now I'm getting again granular and going back to the Keith's case. But like you, you then you you then have to not believe that the police planted the gun. Like you have to, you, as a prosecutor, you have to have decided mm-hmm. that it must be that must have been his gun, even though there's zero evidence supporting that. I mean, in Keith's case, you know, Keith was initially prosecuted for this this armed robbery. Um, the whole thing that you know he got shot because police were chasing an armed robber of a cab driver. Um, right. They lost, I mean, our belief is they lost sight of that guy and then they saw Keith running because everybody was running because somebody was yelling, he's got a gun. And it's because the police right. are there and this is Baltimore and you run from police. And right. they ended up chasing Keith into this garage and they shot him. Um, 
they prosecuted Keith for this armed robbery, even though the victim of that armed robbery didn't identify Keith in a photo lineup. He didn't describe Keith at all. Like the guy, the guy he described had different hair, different outfit. You know, he didn't say anything about tattoos. Keith is covered in tattoos, et cetera. You know, that's all stuff they they knew the day it happened. But they pursued this prosecution. Um, They go to trial and then the, the case fall like, utterly falls apart in court you know the 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 victim says that he goes right up to Keith and says it doesn't look like him to me the police officers all testify and their stories are all over the place um you know the jury clearly didn't believe anything that they were hearing about the actual crime and yet as Keith has been continued to be prosecuted for this other separate crime this murder that happened that same day but earlier in the morning um they have to they they rely they have to rely to a certain degree on that armed robbery case because it's how they connect Keith to this gun and um you know they even though a jury acquitted of um Keith of every charge associated with the supposed armed robbery of of supposedly pointing a gun at police they acquitted him all those charges the state presents it and they talk about this publicly as if Keith is guilty of being that armed robber, even though all of the evidence, like anybody sitting in that courtroom, the prosecutor, her, her face must have fallen, like when her her victim, like is inches away from Keith's <laughs> face and saying, "Not nah, doesn't look like him to me. And yet there's this like, for five years now, the state continues to maintain not only, even though he's been acquitted of this crime, that he committed that armed robbery, and then he also committed this murder. and. So, you know, I don't get it because to me, that's just a real, I don't know how they can believe, they have to believe, I think, everything about the armed robbery in order to believe in the murder case because you, it relies so heavily on believing the police who shot Keith, that they did everything right, right, that all of the evidence was untouched and not tainted, that nobody lied. Um, in order to continue pursuing the murder case, like you, if you were, if they were to acknowledge the fact that the armed robbery case was garbage, um, that the officers were not being truthful, that then you really have to question how the hell that gun got in the garage where Keith was, and right. you know, then you really have to wonder, well, did he have any? It just makes the rest everything fall apart, and. Right. So I, and I, I don't know, I think that uh, in this particular case, obviously like we're like, you know, we've had five trials total now. There's a, I think once you get past like trial number two or three, like there's no going back, (laughs) you know? Like I would love, I mean, there should be like, but it's like, you know, how do you, in a way, like I, I, it's, I don't get it, but I get it, you know, it's like, you can, how do you walk back that? I mean, and I think that 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 the state's attorney's office had, has had a number of opportunities to sort of blame um, other things for why their case, why they need to drop the case. Like they could have blamed, you know, uh, one of the, the prior prosecutor. Um, they could have blamed the, the lead homicide detective who legitimately committed perjury at three of the trials. Like they, there are a lot of things. They could have blamed one of the shooting officers who shot Keith literally leaving the department because she was under investigation by the FBI for running drugs and guns. Yeah, that was a gem. That was a gem of a reveal. Like legitimately dirty cop. 
like resigned. To, yeah, but I'm we're just wondering to believe if like her, I it, which is insane. I, it almost seems like, and maybe you're about to say this, and I just got too impassioned and totally cut you off. But, but now I'm on a now I'm on a roll, and I also can't go back, just like Marilyn Mosby. Um, <laughs> no. uh, I, but it almost feels that you know there's a, that there could be that double edged sword or the one edged sword. I never understand how that uh, expression know, works I mean, when you're either. like it's good and it's bad, so it's a good sized sword, but then it's going to hurt you and the so it's a double. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> but it's almost like the the non thing, right? With with the bail hearing and stuff, it's like oh, instead of it, like it, it had in order for all of this to happen, there had to be this groundswell of media attention and support and noise and you know all of this stuff like serves to benefit you know we'll never know could it have gone further without cereal but also more specifically undisclosed because that's the game changer right is susan and the, mm-hmm. the things that were uncovered and undisclosed but then also it's like it's working against you because you know you the, the judges don't like media or oh, right, you yeah. know you can argue that he's a bail risk because da 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 it's like Team Keith is so powerful and, and, you know, maybe not powerful as powerful as we would want it to be, but it is certainly louder and more powerful than someone who doesn't have that kind of ag- advocacy happening. And perhaps that feeling of we can't go back now is our our adversary is extremely well armed to your right. point earlier like it would like it's like well the only reason that we're fighting as hard as we can is you know that should hopefully get him his new trial and hopefully continue the fight for justice but at the same time oh shit that's a powerful voice we really have to continue to stomp it out or it's going to get bigger and bigger or right. it's going to sue us or this could lead to me not being reelected etc cetera, etc cetera. Right. I mean, I think it is it, it is definitely complicated. You know, it's like nothing there is no easy s- solution here. Like I think and and there's it's really difficult to sort of plan um to know what is going to have an impact. I mean, obviously Adnan was sitting in prison for a decade. Um and you know, with no media coverage and the state wasn't exactly like chomping at the bit to let him go. Um, right. And so I think the idea that, you know, you just have to play by the rules and, you know, that will that will bring you home um, is certainly not true. Um, I mean, I think it really depends on the case. It depends on the people. It depends on like none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. That's what I think people really need to realize is that like and I think that people tend to write this stuff off as being a conspiracy, but it's not like these systems work because the, the everybody's sort of looking out for themselves and you know, they're influenced very much by like history and like, you know, these institutions that have been in place and how things have been done forever, but they're also influenced by the moment, you know? And Mm. I don't think it's necessarily possible to like come up with the perfect strategy for how to deal with something this monstrous of of somebody who is innocent being held in prison um, for something that they didn't do. I don't think the system makes it easy no matter what. And, you know, I think in Keith's case, 
you know, uh, one of the things we always talk about, like, so Keith was shot and then he was charged with this armed robbery. And, you know, it was very quiet for, for the sort of entire first summer, summer of 2015. You know, there was barely any media coverage. Kelly, who was behind the scenes, scrambling, trying to figure out what to do, she was quiet. She was all, she felt very much like as soon as you know, this case gets to actual Marilyn Mosby's desk. And like, as soon as I can get through to her, maybe she'll meet with me. Like, she's going to fix this. She's going to see this is all wrong. Mm. And so she was quiet, you know? Yeah. And it, she didn't start becoming vocal until after she was contacted by the state's attorney's office. They brought her in for an interview and they treated her practically like she was a suspect herself um, and trash talk Keith. And I think she realized at that point, for like, it's really solidified for her, like, playing by the rules I, like this this is this office is not going to save him like they're right. not going to help me here um right. and so she she did what she had to do like she wasn't an activist she was a mom you know she yeah. had a job she baked cupcakes like and keith was her boyfriend and now she's this you know i think she discovered in herself that she's this like force and that she's this incredible organizer but i can tell you for sure like all Kelly wants in the world is for Keith to come home and she will never say another word about it. Like she, <laughs> she has no, yeah. you know, she, this has stolen her life and yeah. she, this is nothing that she wanted. And it's, she's found herself just in this position. Um, you know, I think it's so unfortunate because yeah, I do think that there are certainly repercussions that come from being vocal. Um, but there are repercussions that come from being silent. And, you know, I'm not, I pretty strongly believe that one th reason why Keith is still alive is because Kelly has, has been so vocal and that she's gotten so many people to pay attention to this case. Um, I really wonder what would have happened to him, honestly. So, yeah. and I think there are ways in which you know, being public and being vocal actually are good that people maybe don't really think about. Um, yeah. And I think people also need to remember, like, there's so much that happens behind the scenes that you never hear about and you will mm. never hear about. Um, you know, every day is a struggle. Every day there's some, you never know, like, I don't know. I think it's all just this long battle. And I, I think it depends on who you are and, 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 what the case is and what the environment is. I think in Keith's case, it, like he, this case needed attention. It still does. Um, and I don't think that he would be in any better position if any of us had been quiet, if Kelly had been quiet, if Team Keith had been Absolutely. quiet, if I had been quiet. Like, I don't know whether or not the podcast, like clearly the podcast didn't have an impact in freeing him. <laughs> um, he was convicted. Um, but... Mm. I, you know, that was a, that was hard. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's I'm a so tough sorry. pill to swallow. Yeah, there was definitely part awful. of me and my like awful, you know, white savior <sighs> way wanted to like somehow make the difference. Um, but I like to think that at the very least, more people are paying attention to it and, and thinking yes. much deeper about yes. cases like his and about yes. policing and prosecuting in general. Um, and at the very least, you know, at, at the very, very least, I think that like podcasts like Undisclosed, like, like 
in, creates a, helps create a more informed jury pool, you know? Absolutely. And my God, that's what but we also, need. But also, like, look at it in the dark. I mean, in the dark, like, yeah. Curtis Flowers had six trials, right? And was going and, was and, and you know, talk about something stinks. And eventually, you know, through that podcast and arguably that podcast alone, ulti- you know, ultimately that wasn't the case. But, like, through the work that was done there, um, it may not have looked like that on day one or even on episode, you know, nine or whatever. Uh, you can't control who the Supreme Court hears, like all that kind of stuff. But you just keep your, you know, you just keep your shoulder to the wheel, as it were, because, you know, whether or not you you personally get to like sign a document that's like, and now it's all taken care of, like versus, you know, the way those those groundswells happen happen I mean you're you, you you've every right to a feel incredibly frustrated and heartbroken and b to feel like it's not over because it's not yeah. and you know and 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 I think that's that's ultimately what's incredibly ex- inspiring is the the willingness that people have to come along for the ride and to to your point ask those questions and to be willing I mean I don't know. I, I I don't know what you know. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that's led to where we are right now and what the last few weeks have brought to this country. Um, I don't you know. For me, it's really exciting to see people coming on board. And I understand that there are people who are like, "Fuck you! Where have you been all this time? I'm pissed." I of course I get that, but ultimately, you know, maybe I'm like a little white savior girl also, <laughs> but you know, I do have the Pollyanna attitude. Yeah, I mean, I have the Pollyanna attitude of like I also feel like really really proud of 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 podcasts like the, you know the the coverage that you've done everything undisclosed is done in the dark accused all of these podcasts that are working so hard to shine the light on this and I do feel like those things they they're all pieces that are contributing to this kind of greater wave that you know I I, I think I think the the momentum is here I I think that it's not you know what I mean it's not two weeks old it's not three weeks old it's years old you know yes it's decades old but like conversation happening about defunding the police like about police abolition that's like massive that's i don't think that people like we were barely this country was barely willing to deal with um even really thoroughly cover uh, police brutality like to even criticize right. police at all and right. suddenly i mean i, I I think it's incredible. Like suddenly now we're having like people, people I would never expect are having, you know, they may not quite grasp it yet. They may not necessarily be in favor, but they're, they're not looking at people who are saying, Hey, you know, we actually don't need the police. We could actually put that money into, into, uh, hiring people and creating resources and infrastructures that, that, that get deal with the problems that cause crime, you know, because right. um, right. the vast majority of crime isn't like Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, the vast majority of crimes, even murders are uh, stem from like long term systemic issues like poverty, lack of education, all of that. Right. And I think that, you know, it's unbelievable to see 
like this conversation happening as opposed to, you know, police abolitionists, I think are probably very used to being just sort of dismissed as crazy people living in a dream world, you know, Um, which is actually incredibly ahistorical because the police are a relatively new invention. Like, yeah, they're very, very, you know, we've had things that are police like, but not like they are now. I mean, policing in this country is relatively new. I think it's like late mid to late 1800s. Um, So, you know, I just think it's forcing people to really sort of uh, reckon with the things that they they had believed their whole lives um, and really sort of face things that like, oh, wait, maybe this thing that I've always believed never really even questioned. Maybe it's maybe I don't agree completely with it. It's just like amazing to see. I mean, it, on the flip side, obviously, it's horrifying when you think about how many how many uh, largely black or people of color have had to die um, to I know. to have this taken seriously, but uh, it's never too late. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, oh my God, I could talk to you for a million hours. You can totally tell me like, Janet, we need to pick this up and we can get a personal about you, like you and where you come from and all of that good stuff, like at a different time, I'm totally oh, fine good. with whatever, whatever but, yeah. um, but I, I do, I think that's something that, you know, on a personal note, like that's everything you said it resonates so deeply with me. And I think, um, that's one of the things that's really important for people I think to be able to connect with in themselves and to be able to look at and you know I think we talked about this as a culture and in the media more um, you know maybe month one of the coronavirus but uh, and and we talk about it less now because uh, you know as you said like there's so much shit going down Mm -hmm. that even even the most responsible journalist is like what do I do which one do I say what story do I tell I don't I only there's only so many hours in a day and I need to be able to sleep right Um, but you know it's this is all really scary and and that's that's gonna still be true even if it's exciting and even if it's you know I I was sort I sort of still you know I kind of like like settled into some sort of a whatever my norm you know became uh you know in in May for example Mm -hmm. was like you know sort of a month of like no, I got you know I I'm kind of doing okay like I I'm I'm re I, I I'm I'm a, a, exposing myself much less to mm-hmm. stories of people's families dying because I'm not able to do anything about that. And it's turning me into a person that is like kind of emotionally wasting away. Yeah. Um, so how do I, you know, what can I do? How do I stay positive? How do I like maintain the sense of who I am? I'm privileged enough to be able to make some of those decisions that not financially based, you know, right. uh, I don't have to show up at a meatpacking fa- factory or, you right, know, or, right. or, or, or get my, you know, good go deliver a million things from Amazon or whatever. Um, But, you know, like even just this morning, I just like, I really needed to have a very long cry this morning. And I couldn't necessarily articulate like, it's just this one thing. It's like, it doesn't, it, how could it even be one thing right right now? And, and that's everything and everything it is so messy and scary for us to even be coping with corona i mean i think if you know a hundred years from now we haven't blown ourselves up and and people can look (laughs) back and go you know people can look back and go 
wow, if you if you follow this line, and by the way, I'm I do not mean to give him a shred of credit. I'm not like <gasps> I, cool, thanks Trump. But like, if you have to say like cause and effect, like he had to be impressed. He, he you know he he may have had to be in office. This virus may have had to happen when he was in office in order for this these people to martyr themselves unknowingly, mm-hmm. um, as many m- many people have uh, for decades and decades and decades as they've been unlawfully killed. Um, and and all of this had to happen in order for this phoenix to rise from the flames or whatever this clumsy weird like freaked out baby phoenix that right. <laughs> no one knows what to do with or what it needs to look like or how it's going to act but that's really hard and it's really scary and it's not as simple as like well if if defunding the, fo- the police felt right to me i wouldn't be afraid of it Right. It's like it's no. G- give yourself a break. Give yourself a break. Allow yourself to go. Oh my God! What if someone comes and breaks in and steals all my stuff? Because the police don't exist anymore. Let yourself have those feelings, and then go educate yourself and have a conversation with somebody, or just go online, or whatever you need to do to process those emotions. Forgive yourself for them, but understand that that feeling you have, that messiness, is not enough to go back to the way things happen. Right. Don't avoid it. <laughs> I think don't the, avoid yeah. it. It's unavoidable. It's I I mean, I'm sure like we figure out how ways to avoid things all the time and, you know, the, the the more power the person has who's avoiding something, obviously the more impact it has. But, you know, this is not like it's really scary and it's really scary for those of us who weren't around for the civil rights movement as it existed in the moments that it happened. We weren't around for MLK's assassination. We weren't around for JFK's assassination. Like there are those of us who, you know, there are people now who don't even remember 9-11. Right. Who are adults. Yeah. Like That shocks me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and so for us as a nation to be grappling with this, um, it's terrifying. All of the things that are happening are very scary. Um, but that's what it feels like. I think like, oh, this is what it feels like to be in the storm. This yeah. is it. And none of us have really felt that until now. Yeah. And that's big. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like you got to kind of embrace it in a way. I mean, it's just the reality of it, you know? And I think this is a time that people are finding that they have a lot to learn. Like, I feel like in a weird way, like, so maybe it's just that, like, the coronavirus is, like, in a weird way, like, humbled everybody. Because mm-hmm. yeah. here's this beast of a thing that, that like, still we don't understand. And... Yeah. It's so, and it, it seemingly, I mean, it didn't come out of nowhere, but relatively like out of nowhere. Like, you know, it's, it, you know, if you've been paying attention, like I listen to Up First on NPR every morning. So I've been learning about the coronavirus since like late December, early January. But that's like as far back as it goes. Like it's new. Yeah. And yeah, like, like we still. Still, there's, it's, there's so much we don't know. Is it a lung thing? Is it a stomach thing? Oh, it's both. Like, are some people immune? Are some people like, but then some people like are, you know, dead within six days. Like, it's 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 terrifying. It's so yeah. totally, unbelievably terrifying. And I think that it's sort of made everybody realize like, oh, 
we like we don't have everything figured out at all like I don't personally and what could be scarier yeah and what could be scarier than the experts saying that what could be scarier you know then you because and so of course you're going to look to whatever voice seems like it keeps you the most safe even if that voice is saying like no you you, don't worry about it like don't wear a mask (laughs) like oh good oh good the thing I want to hear you know I but think that's we're also not, like a, a culture yeah. that has been has become increasingly, increasingly like escapist, um, yes. and in, and increasingly aspirational and like, you know, I don't mean to like, uh, and I totally participate this in this myself. Like, you know, whether it's watching like Selling Sunset on Netflix or like you know spending two hours scrolling through like you know perfect people's lives on Instagram, um, but. Uh, like that's what we've come to really value in this country I guess I mean the people who make like the most money are the people who post pictures of their perfect families and their outfits on Instagram Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. you know uh good for them I guess but like what is that about and like one of the things I one of the first things I sort of thought about is with the lockdown happened I was like oh my god what are all the influencers going to do like yeah the people who are used to like literally putting on a costume every day and going and doing a photo shoot every day of their outfit and like right uh you know it's just it it like in that's I mean obviously there are people who are more affected by the coronavirus people who are much more susceptible to dying people who don't have nearly as many resources blah 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 but like it's something that affects everybody um mm-hmm. because even if you are immune you don't know so right like I think it, it brought everybody in a weird way down like made us all realize like we're all kind of on the same level here and we're all sort of like what the fuck is going on and then I think that you have these people desperately trying to go back to the way it was and you have have our president very much trying to be like oh coronavirus whatever that thing it was like just a flu who cares it's Mm -hmm. everything's going great guys shut up um and I and I think what we're seeing is like so many people being like no 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 not no 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 you're not gonna do that like the gaslighting has gotten to be so like insane that I it's almost like I feel like maybe people are pulling in stepping away from that and and recognizing like what the hell is going on and like that this can happen that we could have somebody in the position of of the president like literally like spewing fake science and 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 just, I mean, saying stuff that to me, like, since the first day of the coronavirus, like, everything he said is to me, I'm like, that's impeachable. Like, know, what the hell? I'm like, I know. screw Biden gate. I'm like, the guy is, like, actively, like, trying to kill people in this country. Like, isn't that right. impeachable? Um, right. And I think it's, it, I think it's made people realize, like, he's getting away with it. Like, we have a system yeah. that is allowing him to get away with it. We have a system that, that expects us to still respect that. To still stand for him, you know, to still right. respect who he is and his position, and I think it's making people who normally are have been comfortable going along with the status quo um, in in every sort of facet of their life. I mean, maybe it, even if they are further to the left politically, but just like in general, like things worked for them, so they didn't question it. And I think maybe what's happened with the coronavirus is it's made people like woken people up and then the fact that you know George Floyd's Floyd's murder 
maybe I don't know if it's that it happened at, at this because it happened at this time that people like their bullshit meters are like suddenly working and they're they're disgust with uh maybe people in positions of power was like more heightened than it ever had been I don't know uh, maybe people just wanted to get out of the house I don't know what <laughs> I it's amazing I mean I didn't yeah. it's you know having done all the work I did on the Freddie case and then everything with Keith, you know, obviously I, I, what I could stand to watch of, um, the George Floyd video, um, was, uh, absolutely horrifying. Um, but I also think like there have been so many that are, have been horrifying in their own ways and, and equally so. Um, and so I don't know what it is, about this in particular, I, I think it has to, it's complicated. It has to be a combination of just like timing and uh, yeah. the political moment and the state of the world. And I don't know, but I hope that yeah. what I hope people are realizing is, is that the big takeaway for them is that they have how much we all have to learn, like, yeah. and how much we have to learn from the people who are different from us and who, who, who have walked a completely different life, you know? Um, because what we have for a president is somebody who has lived in a bubble and has right. has ascended, like, has been an utterly worthless human being his entire life, has, has, has been an utter failure in his life, his whole life, and does not know it because he's lived in a bubble that's told him his failures are successes. And... He's somebody who's continuing to try and lead the country from within his little bubble and people are dying. And I, I sort of wonder if it's just sort of made people realize that they, ha they exist in their own little bubble too. And I don't know. I mean, maybe that's, that's kind of my hope at least is what's going on. I really hope that people are not pacified by you know, Derek Chauvin being prosecuted for murder or right. the cop who uh, killed Breonna Taylor being fired, um, right. that those, those things happening are good, but they are not enough. Those, um, and that we cannot be pacified because that's desperately what, you know, the state agencies, the people in power, these systems want, they want to pacify us right now. And so right. we cannot be, I mean, that's very much what I think happened after Freddie Gray. I think that the charges brought against the six officers that were in, you know, involved in his arrest and his, um, his death, uh, I think it was an incredible moment, but it pacified people, you know, and mm -hmm. in the wake of them being pacified, Keith happened and right. Keith is still living that nightmare. He's the perfect example. What's happened to him is 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 what will be is an example of what they will do when you're no longer looking. Um, mm. And mm. so powerful set, yes, yes. So you, ju you just can't stop. We this is why we have to get rid of these systems and we have to build something new from scratch that's actually like that we that is good for all of our worlds. You know, like yeah. if cops make you feel safe, but you're that are making your 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 black friends in other neighborhoods feel terrified you cannot you should not be satisfied with that right. with police then like right. you should that's not, should not be okay right. like that should not be acceptable that should not be 
something that we deal with with incremental reforms that like no 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 like well especially when you look at something like minneapolis which was like oh i'm sorry how many reforms had already been put in place uh exactly and this happened in defiance right like i feel when it starts to feel like like the babies are acting out because daddy changed the rules right and that's taking and you're taking lives right like that's your way of acting out that's not gonna work right and i think what people are like i what people need to realize is that like you know People who will believe in police abolition or defunding the police, it's not like they don't, like, there is a long history of work done into what would actually be replacements for the police. And there's people that have done extensive writing and speaking on these topics. They are all out there for you to find. It doesn't need to be scary, and it certainly should not be a conversation that's shut down. Um, And I... I think the thing that I find most inspiring right now is the fact that like for finally people aren't running away from these conversations and are talking about them. I think learning a lot and realizing, oh, like there's a lot more here than I thought. And this isn't so crazy. And like, I may not know how I feel about it yet. And like, I may have some thoughts and disagree about certain things, but like, there's something really substantive here. Yeah. And it's, it's gotta be, you know, it's it, it's got to be better than like how many other like re- these reforms don't work. You see it in city after city. Eric Garner was choked to death with a chokehold that was like that was against policy. Like, right. you know, <laughs> no rules are going to yeah. be broken by bad. Like the rules aren't if they're not enforced. Right. And they were not enforced in that case. Like, right. Eric Garner was choked to death. And then the cop who killed him stayed on the force for five years collecting a paycheck. Well, because there's always going to be mitigating circumstances right. or worse yet, you know, um, th- this idea of and it's brilliant. I mean, it's so it's so perfectly brilliant. You'd think it was diabolical, but it's actually also true is. Well, you can't per- you can't prosecute this one guy. He was just doing what 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 the entire you know force does. Now, we can't start pointing fingers at everyone because then we just wouldn't have police. So you have to let this one person off because right. this he's part of this whole culture. So you can't get rid of him, but also you can't get rid of the force. So I guess there's nothing that can be done. Sorry. Well, I think it's like that, oh, that that's brilliant. People, like that's right. very dark. <laughs> but but I think that the what we're seeing now is like people finally taking that. Actually, like if you continue to follow that logic, yes, yes, the answer, follow it. Yeah, the answer isn't like it. Maybe the answer is we need to think of new ways of dealing with this kind of thing that don't involve criminalizing and that don't yes. involve locking people in cages. Because when that is the that is the end all be all threat, and that and people like weirdly feel really uncomfortable with it when it comes to police, but not so uncomfortable with it when it comes to the average person. But regardless, like that forces you to challenge your understanding of like what of our penal system in general, that's a good thing. Like, right. Like how should we be dealing with officers who kill people? Um, I think it's a complicated question. I think, I think where you stand on it depends on how personally affected you may be. Um, Mm. I, I don't, 
I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer, but it's complicated. And I think we should be having complicated conversations. Like that isn't this right. like the point of like, like one of the points of being human is to expand your knowledge and to grow and to like develop your understanding and to develop compassion and, and like the pursuit of knowledge, like, yeah. And democracy, yeah, like, right. guess what? It's a, it's a big mess. Democracy is a big old messy thing especially when it's working it's a mess right and unfortunately we're like humanity is messy and that's what we're just always gonna we're just always gonna be messy and so if you run away from the mess like if you don't want a mess you can definitely move to a country where someone will tell you what to do all day how much money you're gonna get whether you will get any whether you'll get health care how many children you can have what you can watch what you can consume like you can have it simpler you ain't gonna like it any better right you know um and you know like just the conversation about what constitutes democracy is up for debate i think but especially the way we've been doing things um let me ask you this next question because this will take me a little closer to you amelia (laughs) um do so one of the things that i think people are seeing right now as you know the conversations are being had about how to be a white advocate Mm -hmm. for black lives matter or feeling wanting to feel like there's a place for them in something and not wanting to feel like they're too late to the party or not wanting to feel like oh i feel like i feel judged or i feel like i'm the bad guy because I'm white and I'm trying to help solve the problems of a group of people who have been, you know, grossly underrepresented in 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 our culture, in the world at large, um, with thoughts and ideas and 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 defenses and all of that kind of stuff. Um, what has it been like for you to be a person moving inside the neighborhoods of Freddie Gray and talking to the neighbors and being a part of that. Um, how, what do you, what has your experience been like? And is there anything that you can tell people who feel like, oh, maybe I don't, maybe there's nothing I can do? Um, I think that like, well, as far as like the Freddie thing, like what I would come down here when I started, first started working on the podcast and, you know, one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to go back and talk to people who were witnesses to his arrest. Um, in West Baltimore and um, by a a housing project called Gilmore Homes that unfortunately is being demolished now. But, um, and I like, I was, I suppose a little nervous in the sense that I don't in general, like I'm not like uh, a super social person. So like the idea of like going and like, this is one of my anxieties about being a journalist, like, uh, and investigating anything is that I, as much as I like doing it, I also sort of like I'm also a little scared about knocking on doors and picking up the phone mm. and calling strangers. It's always a little awkward to be like, hello, you don't know me, but I'm about to ask you some incredibly personal questions about a really sure. terrible day. Understandable. Um, so that aspect of it was, you know, difficult. But um, I wasn't, um, I felt, you know, uh, people were so nice. <laughs> like there were some people who didn't want to talk at all and they would just tell me that. And then there were people who were absolutely happy to talk to me and I've you know made some close connections with a couple of the witnesses who I still you know I'll hop on a scooter and I'll scoot on over and I'll drop by and sit on the porch and talk some shit with them and um I you know in terms of like being a white person in wanting to be involved and wanting to be a good ally um I really, and I, this is something that I continue to learn every day. Um, it's something that I have, I, you know, I would say that I've, 
I am come a, a long way since a year ago, let alone mm. five years ago. And mind you, I was I was raised by like incredibly like really radical uh, people. So you know, I am lucky in that sense that I already came into my adulthood with a sort of sense of like justice and and strong feelings about racism and all of that kind of stuff. But I am mm. also a person who is a white woman. I've been a white woman my whole, or white girl, white woman, white <laughs> adolescent. I, yeah. and I think, so the thing that I would, I sort of tend to advise, and this is the thing that I continue to be um, having to recognize myself, um, is how powerful our own um, experience with the world is in in sort of tainting our, our like, it infects our belief of how everybody must experience the world, right? Like, yeah. and so there can be this, but not everybody experience, like, if you're not a white woman and, and you're in fact a black woman, you're experiencing the world very differently in a lot of different ways, you know? There may be some things that are sort of similar. I mean, it, it, class is a huge issue, like, and that you could, I, there have been times where I've felt really strongly about um, something, like, that I think is, uh, maybe the best example I can use it. There are times where like when we're talking about Keith's case or, or something and we're talking maybe about strategy or or we're talking about, you know, what needs to be done in court or like what the jury, what will affect the jury. And like, you know, I'll feel something really strong. Like I'll really believe my my position on something is correct. Um, and Kelly will have a very different take. And the there have been times where I've sort of found myself being like, well, no, I don't, that's like not true. But then the more I think about it, the more I, I come to realize, wait a second, she has much, like, she has a much deeper connection. She has a much better understanding of how a largely black jury is going to perceive and deal with um, a crime allegedly, you know, perpetrated by a black male against another black male, um, mm. you know, and that I, I should shut up and I need to listen, <laughs> right? you know? Right. And that, that you know, n none of us can predict the future, but yeah. this idea that our own, our own lived experience, and, um, especially as white people, which has been largely, you know, has been reinforced as the norm by our culture um, and anything different from it as being abnormal, um, that's not the case. Um, and I think it, it, there are so many throughout the day, like checking yourself on that and recognizing the sort of micro ways in which you are sort of contributing to that, reinforcing that idea of the white um, experience being the sort of normal experience and anything sort of different from that as being diverging. Um, right. And so, and what it comes back down to is just like, honestly, shut up, listen. Yeah. Like I really tried with the podcast, like there were definitely, I, I felt like my role was to um, really dig into the evidence, really present the sort of facts and really analyze, you know, analyze all the sort of the backdrop. But I wanted the story to come from well, as much as possible from Keith and Kelly. Obviously, Keith, I was limited on, but um, largely from Kelly. 
and from the supporters, the people who actually, and the, the journalists that were there reporting on it early on, like the attorneys, people who actually had been in the experience of it. Um, mm-hmm. are, people are capable of telling their own stories. And I saw myself as being um, uh, ideally the person who would kind of connect all of that stuff together and develop it into like a sort of cohesive narrative. But I learned so much, not just through analyzing the evidence, but through talking to Kelly and to talking to, and I learned so much through talking to the witnesses to what happened to Freddie Gray and, and also just like, See, understanding their reaction to things that I found uh, horrifying or striking and them being like, yeah, we knew that. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and the, the way in which, you know, uh, being a black person in a city that is based, occupied by a, a, a corrupt police force um, impacts your uh, perspective on individual events so like a kind of good example of that I think is like I you know I've been obsessed with like the evidence in the Freddie case and little micro things and the like you know uh, the edits that may have been done to the CCTV Mm -hmm. footage and and all of this stuff and like what it means and like putting together all the pieces and like that is my job um but like it's funny because like I'll I'll talk to like one of the witnesses in the case and sort of tell him like things that we've discovered or whatever and they they're like yeah we know because we saw it like and that has been like a real you know kick in the pants for me and a real check for me because it's like yeah no shit they don't need me telling them that like i put all of these little bits and pieces together and i figured out exactly how the police covered up they know what happened they are so used to being gaslit and being told and ignored and dismissed and not believed and Mm -hmm. in a weird way I sort of had to recognize that like even coming to them and being like, look what I was able to prove is almost reinforcing that same exact kind of culture, you know, like that, that, that it takes a white woman going in and and analyzing the evidence and doing a podcast to validate, you know, what they have been saying to anyone who will listen for forever. Um, And you know, and that doesn't mean that like I have something to apologize for or anything. It's just, it's like a humbling moment. It's an important thing to recognize. And I think that like, I guess my point in the grand scheme of things to answer your question is that like these, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not fun. Nothing yeah. about this is fun. It's especially not fun for the people who are being mistreated and abused and oppressed, <laughs> you know? So like, it's also not going to be fun for you, um, right. but that's okay. Like, people, I think, are so terrified of discomfort. Like, this is what I'm talking about, like, with the whole idea of escapism, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, not wanting to be at all uncomfortable. And in the meantime, there's all these other people who are becoming increasingly more uncomfortable. Mm. And, like, you know, being uncomfortable doesn't have to be – it can actually be, like, a gratifying experience in the long run. Like yeah. – there have been times where like I've learned so much just from becoming being friends with Kelly over the last couple of years like and you know every day it's it's like I mean she's a wonderful person and a great friend and she's hilarious so I get so much out of our relationship but like I also learned so much just from 
at times being wrong and having her check me, you know, or having her get frustrated with me. And, or I like, you know, feel like bruised for some reason, then cry. And then like have a moment and realize like, like, I, you know, I was, I, uh, maybe I wasn't right there. Like I actually, you know, the more that I think about it, like she had a point and like, you know, going through all of that, like go through it all. Like you won't die. <laughs> like right, you're right, going right. to be fine. And if you are open to it and you feel all the feelings um, and are conscious also, although of the feelings that you are uh, inflicting upon others and provoking out of others and being cautious about that, but like you could come out the other end much better off, like guaranteed 100%. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, nothing bad can come from that. Um, so I guess my advice would be like, you know, just go in and be yourself, but listen, you know, yeah. and, and, um, things that don't be defensive. Oh God, don't be defensive. Don't be mm-hmm. defensive. Like, look, like uh, white people have been causing, uh, trauma since the beginning of time <laughs> um <laughs> as a white person like did you inflict that trauma not necessarily is it your fault that trauma was inflicted no but do you also rake in the privileges of being white whether you want them or not yes and like right. this is the world that we live in and like if your focus is purely on your own hurt feelings and your own discomfort, like how are you helping? You know, right. like, right? yeah, learn from other people. And like also like if people are, you know, people are mad and people are like, just don't be afraid of anger. Like yeah. let people be fucking angry. They have things yeah. to be angry about. Like get, that's yeah. the thing, get used to being uncomfortable for the love of God. Because there are people right. who feel far worse than uncomfortable every single day of their lives and like yeah so and and you're not making it any better for them by avoiding discomfort right so like get used to it and actually there's a lot of solidarity that can come like i would say also like connecting with other other white people who are also kind of going through similar growing pains i think it's like really important for white people to be checking each other it shouldn't be the job of people of color to like teach us how to be better um but at the same time we should listen and and you know learn um but you can also like find tremendous community you know like it from people who are like yourself like wanting to learn more and wanting to be able you know to be supportive and then from the people you are supporting like you know, these are like deep relationships that can really grow. Um, yeah. That so like the discomfort is friggin' worth it, man. I couldn't agree more. I the 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 main thing that kind of keeps cropping up that's getting I think a lot of um, it, it certainly seems to be front and center if you are a person looking for that kind of uh, advice or that kind of community. Um, it's to, 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 From my perspective, showing up for racial justice surge is kind of one of the louder like voices of speaking to kind of what you're saying of, of you know, listen, that you can you can you can be on this journey and you don't have to be alone and you can talk, you know, you can sort of learn on the way and and also 
be checked Mm -hmm. um, by somebody who's been maybe doing it longer or, you know, you can help somebody who's doing it less time, all that kind of stuff. Um, But there, you know, that's not the only place to go. But if people are interested, I can, you know, drop in a link in the the show notes for for Surge as just one one possibility. Um, It's funny because I do feel like, you know, in in terms of like where you're you're coming from and I I know you mentioned that you you know just your upbringing alone was was perhaps more on the radical side or on the liberal side and as soon as you said that you went to Santa Cruz I was like (laughs) "Mm -hmm, I approve (laughs) you know that is definitely a UC school that is you know very much known and beloved for you know for you know thinking thinking about things maybe outside a conventional the most conventional way that you're going to find in in the U.S. and in you know school systems and um and very much like a, a place that I think of very fondly having not even gone there just from friends of mine yes. who've gone there and from living oh, in San Francisco for nine and a half years oh, okay. you know there feeling you like very yeah. proud of <laughs> of some of the stuff that comes out of that do you feel like going to school in Santa Cruz sort of helped um was that the, I would assume that that would be kind of part of the like the, the the creating the machine of like at least being able to maybe process some stuff um, that other people might not have necessarily been exposed to in terms of you know having these conversations even earlier on in your life is that fair to say yeah in some ways like it definitely was a school that reinforced a lot of the sort of um, things that my parents had sort of raised me to believe like you know. Um, like I got pass fail instead of grades at UC Santa Cruz, you know, um, like it had a very, um, so it had a sort of an alternative approach in some ways to education and how to sort of like judge somebody's success, um, beyond just like letter grades, you know, um, I think that college, uh, I honestly think that like college was important, but like for me, the way I grew up and my parents being the way they were, um, had just by far the biggest impact on me, including Mm -hmm. in the sense that like there were times in which I kind of, um, uh, uh, resisted a little bit. Like my parents were very Mm -hmm. radical. I mean, my dad, especially so, I mean, my dad was also both my parents are really radical my dad was definitely um he marched to the beat of his own drummer let's put it that way um (laughs) he was very different in a lot of different ways um and in ways that at times for me uh, made me uncomfortable and actually i think i spent there was a good chunk of my life um where i had i was doing what i was just advocating against doing which was i avoided feeling uncomfortable um or wanted to just feel like everybody else um and i think so part of my journey was was also kind of like dealing with that and coming out the other end and realizing oh actually like i i like wanting to kind of conform um or wanting things to be sort of traditional and easy like wasn't good for me either um Mm -hmm. i think santa cruz was um great in the sense that you know first of all it's like a beautiful place but um there's like you know the approach to education there was like very fluid like I got to create my own journalism major because there wasn't there was only a minor but I got to like create my focus and so all of that and I definitely like had you know my journalism professor never taught us that like 
never was never a traditional sort of journalist type. So it, it definitely he definitely had like a huge influence on me in that sense. I will say though that like Santa Cruz is also hugely white. Mm-hmm. And I was about to ask if yeah. there was any diversity in the college no. itself. The I mean some, but like some but you know it certainly wasn't i mean it's a largely white place and it's also i mean it's a beach town in sort of central northern california in the bay area but just south of the bay area so and this was pre huge tech boom but still i mean santa cruz was expensive i mean i think now it's like absurdly expensive but Mm -hmm. it was expensive for the time and so um you know there was a certain level of like privilege too um so i think that like it was good for me in some ways in some ways it still kept me in a bubble um Mm -hmm. moving to new york like i think it's all been degrees of like exposure and also like bubble um baltimore has definitely been the thing that i think really sort of tore that down i mean although still i'm obviously you know still very privileged and and in so many different ways but it definitely has um torn down like some of the barriers that kind of keep you know it hard from noticing I guess like you know where I live like you know you walk a few blocks over and there's tons of like boarded up row houses and um but I think that I prefer that. I don't I don't like not seeing things the way they are. Like I never liked going to visit countries and staying at a resort. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that always seemed weird to me. At the same time, like it's not like I want to do like poverty tourism, but um like there's a happy medium or like a good medium where you're engaging with reality and then taking what you learn and trying to do good with it and trying to um, imagine a better world and doing your part to create it, hopefully. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and it it changes what you value in life. Um, it changes your approach to life. Like, you know, I used to be a lot more career-driven um, or like whatever that means. Like I used to be on a career path. And like now people ask me like, you know, what do you do? And I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. Like I write sometimes, but I also like, (laughs) you know, like I don't have like this, like, and I don't care, (laughs) you know, like I don't necessarily, I make a lot less money than I ever did, but I'm happier. Um, I feel like the, what I'm doing is, is I'm prouder of, or I feel like it's, it's more meaningful. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like, in a way, and I think Baltimore is the catalyst for me. Um, it was a thing that captured my attention and like it, I do think it contributed to like a real, just sort of just, I mean, I think it brought out who I always was and made me a little bit less afraid of kind of embracing that mm. or something. Did you, what was the high school like that you went to? Was it a public school? Was it a private school? It was in the pu- San Diego area? Yeah, I went to public school, um, but it was a, a magnet program, I guess you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bust in. I went to, um, I mean, I, I started there in ninth grade, so I guess it was all of high school. Um, but I'd always gone to weird schools. Like I had gone to a school called 
<laughs> ready? The John Muir Alternative School for Humanistic Studies um, from... Oh, how, how adorably California. Yes. I love it. You know what was funny? <laughs> is like, in some ways, it was like, we call, call of our teachers by their first names. And like, you know, you could skip class if you wanted to and sit on the front lawn and like give your friend a hair wrap instead, <laughs> instead of going to class. <laughs> but also the teachers were still really terrible. So like... <laughs> like it was like a good idea in theory but like in practice it was actually just like not that great but uh -huh. um uh my high school I went to a creative and performing arts high school San Diego school for the creative and performing arts SDSCPA and um I was always more of a visual artist so um I didn't like do like that was actually high school was really hard for me actually because like I was an introvert and I went to a school for extroverts um, it was a lot of like show tunes, <laughs> a lot of singing and dancing and jazz hands. Um, yeah. so like, I don't have like, high school is like almost like I don't even remember it in a weird way. Mm. So I don't know if it was bad or good. It was just, wasn't like, it was whatever. I just don't think, you know, some people are like the best time of my life was high school. I am like, I don't understand that. Like, <laughs> high school was nowhere near the best time of my life. I like don't, it wasn't even the worst time of my life because like, it wasn't that interesting. Like, right, right. It was like, it might as well have never happened. <laughs> like, we could have just fast forward to that part of the movie. You know? Right, 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 right. But what about all the show tunes and jazz hands? You I mean, I did learn on? how to build sets. So that was cool. I learned how to use like power tools. Um, I know. Isn't that the best part of yes. theater stuff? I mean, there you have not like, if you want to feel amazing uh, as a as a as a gal who maybe hasn't had their hands uh, in a lot of stuff. And I feel like I've sought that out and I still did not know what it was going to feel like when I was welding. Like that yeah. was definitely a moment of like, wait a minute, yeah. everybody, what's happening here? Yeah, totally. Like, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been like a creative person who likes to put things together, but like to build a set and to be using like a table saw that like eh, one slip and you can lose your whole hand. Yeah, was like my shop teacher, which was very unencouraging. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's funny yeah my, I think my shop teacher didn't um he lost a pinky so yeah there like, you go yeah always, sooner or later yeah and yet there they are allowing there you they to are. have access to it good times. maybe that's like that's like an uh, the behind the scenes things that happens they're like you're gonna have to give up a pinky because it's gonna save a lot of students pinkies because they're gonna get so grossed out and freaked out that yes. you dropped off your own they're gonna pinky be on the super saw. cautious <laughs> yeah but they're gonna be extra cautious you gotta take one for the team I'm still nervous about saws because of that Oh, oh, it's time for a quick break. I will be back after a word from our friends at Maximum Fun. Strange planets, curious technology, and a fantastic vision of the distant future. Featuring Martin Starr. So we're going on day 14. Shuttle still hasn't come. Aparna Nancherla. The security system provides you with emotional security. You do the rest. Echo Kellum. Can you disconnect me or not? Hurry Kondabolu. I'm staying. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jeffrey McGiver. Could you play Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun? It's The Outer Reach. Stories from Beyond. Now available for free at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you listen.
Okay, I want to get into this mash game. I usually try to aim for an hour. Of course, I've had you on for uh, two hours and counting. <laughs> no, 154. Um, but I feel, but I do feel like we're at a place now where I can get into the mash game without it feeling like just a complete and total departure from our conversation. Well, first of all, I, I like, want to say that like I literally, like the one thing I do remember about high school is that my friend Becky and I, we would play mash every morning in English class for like a solid year. Uh, we I made up it. our own categories as well. Um, but like it was like, I, I love MASH. Bring it on. Okay. This is good because it, I want to offer you up the opportunity to provide a category from the old days if you remember okay. something specifically that you loved. I'm going to start because you uh, talked about being a visual artist. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with um, three st- like styles of visual art, three techniques, three artists, any kind of like thing that you sort of uh, connect with um in terms of visual art that that you can kind of absorb so you can become amazing in the same way that you know uh, Paul Klee was amazing or you can just like you just have this amazing technique where you can do xyz I'm not a visual artist so even building the category I'm being so vague but I'm hoping that it will resonate with you as a fan and as an artist yourself yes well I'm I mean art is my most favorite thing in the world honestly like okay good. I do love making art so um I I mean these are all things that I do um but these are things that I would love to be just like amazing and like and and um uniquely creative and and uh discover my own sort of unique voice I guess so that dis- Great. D- makes me distinguish from other people doing the same thing so like weaving is my thing um I yeah I do tapestry weaving um I for about a couple years um I was doing ceramics um I can't do it right now because I do not have the money or the resources etc 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 but um ceramics was one of those things that I was um so committed to like would spend like 12 hours at the studio like every day Mm. um but was never particularly good at the way people were um so like I would love to be able to throw huge pots on the wheel um I like try really hard and can't but if I could do that I would friggin love it like I just think it's magical agreed um and then third thing my mom is a incredible oil painter just like uh incredible oil painter um and i've tried oil painting i actually love to oil paint but i'm not very good at it i think i have potential though um but i you know and i've really started getting into that and drawing and stuff and like i would love to like there's a moment that happens when you're when you're painting where or you're drawing where you're like you almost become like what you're painting or what you're drawing is in your head but you're almost part of it yourself like Mm -hmm. so you're inside what you're creating um and it's a really incredible blissful moment because then all of a sudden when it happens you realize where all the shadows are supposed to go and you realize Mm. like perspective wise the where certain lines are supposed to be um and to to have that all the time would be super cool 
I love that. Yeah. I love the way you describe that. Uh, okay, beautiful. All right, next category. Let's do three places in the world that um, we're we're removing all current uh, constraints, all financial constraints, etc., all travel constraints. We're going to teleport you there. Three places in the world, even if you've never been to one or all of them, that you would love to have. Like you're gifted a month to just go be there and make art. Oh my god. <laughs> <sighs> Oh, I would like a friggin' villa in Tuscany in summer. Yeah. Like with a pool. And Great. like, just like, oh God, that would be fucking blissful. <laughs> um, I am a hardcore beach person. I, this is, this is maybe also basic bitch, but like before it became overrun by tourists, but Tulum in Mexico is like my favorite place in the world. Um, mm-hmm. Great. And I haven't gone back in a long time and I would love to go there. Um, third place, I'm going to pick something that I've never gone to, um, that I would really like to visit. Um, I mean, this is really shooting for the stars. I'm a big Star Trek nerd and like, I am every day of my life super disappointed that we are nowhere closer to exploring the far reaches of the galaxy. Um, Mm. and like, it really bumps me out. I would love to go to another planet. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. Okay, great, great, great. Okay. Um, I'm going to, let's see, I'm going to take it into one of my favorite categories. Uh, highly, highly, um, just totally like, I don't want to say nihilistic, but certainly very like indulgent. Um, three foods that in this reality you don't have either because you're allergic or you feel like they are sort of ecologically or ethically irresponsible or, uh, you know, they just, it's too much sugar. And you, if you ate as much as you really wanted to, you'd throw up. We're removing all of that stuff and everything is just like... There's zero ramifications for anything. It can be as specific as you want. It's like this one cookie or it can be like, you know, all pizza, uh, three. Okay. Okay. Well, the best pizza I've ever had in my life is in Naples, which is like, no offense to the Napoleon people, but it's kind of a shithole. But it really kind of is. Like, it's really, like, kind of like, ooh. But, like, it's not pretty. Like, the architecture's not good. Like, it's run down. Like, it's like there's nothing to really do. But there's the most amazing pizza place in the world there. Like, you have to wait in line. And it's just, like, I went there once. And it is truly the best pizza I've ever had. I ate, like, two pies myself. And it was, like, incandescent. Like, it was amazing. So that. Wonderful. I mean, honestly, I'm a person who I don't, I don't like stop myself from eating anything. Um, I, it's not that like I am capable of like gaining weight or like having self-esteem issues. Of course I do. But like in general, like I love food. And so when I want to eat, I eat what I want. So I don't feel like there's anything that like, I'm like, oh God, I can't eat sugar. And I'm lucky by the way, like I, you know, I have no allergies and I don't have any major health issues and I don't have to avoid gluten or anything like that. So recognizing that. Um, so there's nothing that I like, am like, Oh, there's something that I don't allow myself. I mean, there, there are things that like, I really think that foie gras is really, really, really delicious. Mm -hmm. Really. This is what this is for. Yeah. 
but it's so, so we're gonna raw. give you unlimited foie gras <gasps> and no, and it's and w- for whatever reason it's just not coming from the source that it is coming it's from not now, made so. from whatever ducks or geese shoved <laughs> in the ground and then force fed until their their little <laughs> livers explode or whatever exactly. it is some horrendous exactly. thing awful exactly um yep. and then i mean can i have like installed in my house a a, like a bountiful never ending um tap of legit champagne from champagne region and it's not a food but i really really love it (laughs) oh you get it you get it don't you worry (laughs) don't you worry uh okay next category let's do three like three places in time uh that you we're going to be able to send you you will be um you'll be safe like if you go to a thing because you feel like it's important to bear witness or whatever you're not going to also get cholera and die so you will you can observe uh without being negatively impacted or you know can be something just fabulous that you're not worried about anyway three times that you would like to travel to and sort of be, be able to see i mean you know the moon landing Great. Would be freaking incredible. Um, this is a hard one. Let me think. Tell I me. guess I should tell you right now. I don't believe in that, and I believe in flat Earth. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what shit. a weird. Sorry. What a weird development. <laughs> <laughs> Two hours in. <laughs> oh, I mean, this is a good conversation. A she said a few Earther. things that surprised me right towards the end that basically colored the entire conversation. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think. Um, time in history. Am I allowed to go to the future? Sure. Oh, but see, the future, we don't know what is out there. I know. See, the imaginary future of, of Star Trek. Oh, my God. I'm revealing my nerd self. Oh, don't um, worry. You're going to get a category where you get to expound on that. Oh, really? So. Okay. Um, other times in history, you know, I watch a lot of, um, Outlander and like, oh, sure. I did not really realize how sexy it was out there in the Highlands of Scotland when they were, you know, the yeah. clans were fighting and all of yeah. that stuff. I'm into it. Yeah, I know. That's a great show. Let's not lie to ourselves. I mean, kilts into it. Yeah really yeah. into it I love um it. and then another time in history i mean maybe like the flapper era be pretty yeah. fun like yeah. the kind of like you know hanging out in like the, the the prohibition era like speakeasies and like i mean not that i'm yeah because it's such a complete it feels so cinematic yeah in terms of just like yeah, there's there's something about it that I almost feel like I need to see to believe yeah. because it's so over the top and so specific and and still like influences sort of like how we think and what we yeah it, it, totally. it's fascinating. Totally. I agree. I, I think agree. it's interesting. Um, okay, beautiful. All right, next category: three TV shows or movies oh that you can jump into. You're not reliving the plot. You're just living in that world whenever you want. Oh, well, Star Trek for sure um like all of it uh but mostly like next generation like i can always mm-hmm. watch that shit i fucking love it it's my favorite show of all time um that uh i'm <laughs> god i have such like base level entertainment <laughs> interests it's like really <laughs> pathetic um i 
hate myself for saying this, but I'm just gonna say it. There is, you know, that Pluto, Pluto, the um, the like streaming. You can watch it on mm-hmm. like f- your TV or whatever. But like, there's so there's a whole binge channel of just nothing but the hills and like <laughs> I don't know what it is Amazing. but like I can put that on and like I've seen every episode 7,000 times and it's nothing happens by the way like it's yeah it's like manufactured drama about nothing um <laughs> but it's oddly soothing it's great background like that yep yep so that um and then I think a movie I can always kind of jump into and like <laughs> this is also embarrassing but my it's, it's I not, applaud your honesty it's not even like a good movie but I think it's hilarious and like I don't even know that like I sort of think it's like bad messaging um but <laughs> love the movie Hitch with Will Smith and, oh, great. <laughs> and Eva Mendes and um what's his face from King of Queens I don't know why I love it that <laughs> that movie great. cracks me up stupid i'm trying to think if i've even seen it Dude. i'm 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 not sure i have it's i don't even know why i like it it's just stupid but good i like it yeah yeah i have a lot i mean i definitely feel like i've got a, a stable of those that yeah. i also maybe feel a little ashamed about but also i'm like no i would still say it like i yeah. would still say it out loud in a match game for sure oh my god can i also uh, add sons of anarchy like i'm always mm, comfortable mm-hmm, with jacks teller's mm-hmm. bare ass Mm-hmm. can always feel mm-hmm. comfortable watching that i think i might give that a second spin Dude. i've only i i went through it once um oh, and uh and i enjoyed show. it very much i just watched we just rewatched uh my sweetie had never seen the shield so we we oh i haven't watched that oh girl really? you really? gotta watch it okay it is like especially i mean listen you might be kind of grossed out because it it is sort of the wire in la mm. right but it is real good like every season is unfailingly super solid it's, it's, it's been on for a while well right written. like how many seasons yeah i mean it's it's been off for a while actually i mean i think it it ended like ooh, five, 10 years ago maybe it's oh, been Jesus. a while since that show went off the air yeah but um but we, I watch it and I'm like, yep, everything's exactly the same. Like everything's still exactly the same. Like the police corruption yeah. in Los Angeles feels like it's being perfectly represented in exactly the way that it is now. Like it's a really good show. Okay, I'm going to watch really that. Because if you I do like Sons like... of Anarchy, I think you would love it because I oh, feel yeah. pretty sure that they're connected by DNA, you know, like oh, writing right, DNA. They're both, I think they're both they're... Um, FX shows. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. possibly even cre- either created. Oh, like, yeah. I it's think you're one of those. Right, actually. They all like those those guys all like write on each other's shows, pr- produce each other's shows. Right. Like there's a lot of like uh, a lot of casts like roll over where right. you're like, oh, you were great in. Um, highly recommend. Dude, okay. Okay. Uh, um, okay. Next category. I am a, a three things in Baltimore that you can change for like like one person per thing you can change something for three different individuals in Baltimore. And obviously there, those things will probably have a, a ripple effect to the people in their lives or the city of Baltimore, but you can change three things for three different individuals. Oh my God. That makes sense. One thing per person. Right. Well, first and foremost, uh, I would change for Kelly Davis. I would bring home her husband. That's <laughs> um, right. Everybody. And her children's father. I would bring him home. Um, Beautiful. Uh, number two, um, I would, I mean, can I dismantle the police department? That's changing yeah. things for a lot of people. Dismantling the police department. Great. And um, 
I would, I think I would, um, I would like for the truth about both Freddie Gray and Keith Davis Jr. and just in general, um, I, I would like there to be a, a much more uh, accurate, varied, uh, uh, complicated um, uh, outlook on Marilyn Mosby. Yep. Um, yeah. By just sort of everyone, herself included. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, okay. This is MASH. There's a, always a component of romance. Yes. So three uh, people you'd like to have romantic slash sexy times with. They can be characters from books, shows, movies. They could be real people, living or dead at any age, any era. The sky's the limit. Oh my Pick God. at will. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Um. Oh, my God. It's like you've like, like there's opened up a whole world of possibilities i mean he's been my fave forever so i just need to do this ryan gosling love him so much oh my god you know who i'm (laughs) rat tail shia labeouf (laughs) 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 love him i i love him i don't know why all of mine are celebrities. Um, no, I'm going to think of somebody real or somebody from history, maybe. Oh, my God. I'm so focused on Shia LaBeouf. Can I get, like, Shia LaBeouf <laughs> without the rat tail? <laughs> I, t- I just keep thinking about him. And I'm, oh, I really like him. Um, I'm, I'm very comfortable yeah. putting I – can, I can give you two a two out of three shot if you want. Yeah. Non-rat tail. Yeah. Non – with rat tail and without. Not drunk, Amazing. though. Sober, sober Shia. Sober. Yep. A soba? I just said soba. soba. I guess I must be hungry. <laughs> um, okay. And then now I have only one category left. This is an opportunity for you if you would like to drop in an old school uh, Becky and Amelia mash category. This would be your opportunity to do so. If you if there's anything you think I haven't covered that you would like covered. Otherwise, I, I will come up with something. I mean, these are all incredible categories. Like, I don't even think that I we were even this creative um i mean we would always do things like our children's names but now i'm like i don't want kids um, <laughs> you know like so i, I guess like a superpower oh yes indeed perfect that's a great choice fly hit me wanna fly great. would love to fly i fly in my dreams and um it's great and i would love to be able to do it in real life um i would love to have whatever superpower would allow me to keep my dog alive forever um, mm, or for as long it. as I'm alive. Um, so that. And then mm. uh, I think also invisibility would be really cool because I would like to go places that I'm not allowed. Mm-hmm. Like I really don't Same. like being shut out of places I'm not allowed. <laughs> like the police department file rooms and evidence exactly. control. Exactly. <laughs> uh great answers okay i love this uh okay give me a number between one and seven uh six okay i'm gonna do this uh quick cannot even be called math it's so simplistic you know i'm gonna do my eeny meeny um Mm -hmm. could you recap for people where they can find you what they should be paying attention to what uh if you want to send people back to um 
stuff you've covered, uh, anything you want to tell people about while I just do this very quickly. Sure. Um, so you can find me, Amelia McDonald Perry, on Twitter. Um, I'm at XO Amelia. So X O A M E L I A. Um, if you would like to listen to the two podcasts I've worked on, um, they're both through Undisclosed, which is at undisclosed-podcast.com. And that's where you can hear uh, The Killing of Freddie Gray, which is the podcast I did with Rabia Chaudhry, Marsha Chatlin, and Justine Barron, um, and Dee Watkins, who hosted our addendum episode. You can listen to all of them there. And then the um, State versus Keith Davis Jr., which is the second podcast I did about the um, shooting and wrongful prosecution of Keith Davis Jr., which you can also hear on the Undisclosed Podcast website. Uh, Other than that, you can, I mean, if you wanted to like review my past life as a women's blogger, I would advise you not to go to the actual website because it's now (laughs) owned by new owners that have turned it into like a weird zombie version. Um, So you can maybe email me if you wanted to read some of those stuff because like, I don't even know if all of it is even up on the website anymore. Um, I also used to write for Rolling Stone, uh, rollingstone.com. You can find some of my work there. Uh, You can um, also, oh, my art. If you want to, you can follow me on (gasps) Instagram. I'm Amelia Magritte on Instagram. It's A-M-E. Oh my God, I didn't know about this. I'm very excited. Yes, Um, Amelia Magritte. So A-M-E-L-I-A-M-A-G-R-I-T-T-E. And I also have an Etsy, um, which I like and forgetting now. this is very good news for me. It is. So if you go to Etsy.com backslash shop backslash, or is it forward slash? I guess it's forward slash, huh? I, I'm very bad at backslash versus forward well, slash. Well, whatever the slash is that you normally would use in a URL, yes. <laughs> shop forward backslash whatever. And it's 11 spelled out. So 1111 XAMP. So 1111 times AMP. A-M-P. Okay, yeah. Great. And that's where okay, all of beautiful. my weavings and I have some ceramics there. And oh, I also I am do going custom. There post haste. I do custom work uh, at weavings. Haste. I'm Bring it on. There. Okay. I have your results that I think you're oh, yes. very happy with. I'm very, very excited for you. Okay. I'm, I just am thrilled with all these results. I can't wait. For First my of all, I want you to know that you got the mansion part yes. of mansion apartment shack and house. So yes. that's a big get. And it's befitting because you did end up with your villa in Tuscany. Hell yes. You can enjoy the beautiful villa of Tuscany with a pool, etc. And not actually have to go and wait in the line in uh, Naples for the pizza that you love. Yes. But I do like that those two still tie in together. Perfect. um, Because you did get the delicious pizza from Naples. Yes. You can also fly. (laughs) So not bad. I'm assuming that perhaps is going to play a role in you being able to visit the, uh, the, do some time traveling and visit the moon landing. Oh my God. I love it. Which is wonderful. Um, You can also, as if that weren't enough, jump into Star Trek The Next Generation (gasps) whenever you so desire. Oh my God. You and you can uh, you are a master, master weaver with all the materials you could ever want. I envision a giant weaving room in the villa in Tuscany that I'm very excited about. 
right endless yarn uh and uh last but not least are these two pieces of information number one you do- you did end up with non rat tail Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> that's probably best the rat tail <laughs> probably for a, the best yeah it's a little sober it's not exactly and non rat tail yeah <laughs> yeah and uh you, we have been able to manifest um without any further ado uh Keith coming home yes! and Kelly getting her husband back. Oh my God, this is, um, you just described my dream life. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I can't guarantee every moment will happen, but I feel like some of this could actually come true. I mean, I really do think so too. I think so too. And I bet I know which one you would pick if you could only pick one. And and hopefully that's the one that will come true. So, uh... Let's make it thank so. you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for doing this podcast. Thank you for I, having me. This was fun. I was so excited uh, to to get Colin to make the intro. And by the way, just per what you were sort of talking about in terms of like people speaking in their own voices, if you feel like Kelly would not be bored to death or be overwhelmed by having to do yet another interview, and this could be like a little bit fun and different, I would love to have her on the podcast and yeah, just keep I'll the message her. going out there. Anything I can do to help, you know, amplify and um, keep thank people talking you. about Keith. Uh, is my complete and total honor and privilege. So yeah, um, I will. I'll talk great. to her and I'll I'll try and great. put you guys in touch. Okay, cool. Um, all right, great. Well, I'm going to stop recording. I will thank all, all of the lovely listeners. And uh, again, thank you, Amelia. I am stopping recording. Yay! I am stopping now too. The show is recorded by me and edited by Julian Burrell. And as always, the JV Club theme song is "Back Before We Were Brittle" by the amazing Say Hi. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.